Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. It is my honor to be in dialogue today with Dr. Timothy Sean Quinn. We will be discussing his new book, Apikoros, The Last Essays of Solomon Maimon, published by Hebrew Union College Press 2021. Timothy, it's an honor to be with you today. Thank you. To our listeners, uh, Timothy is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing well. It's it's a lovely spring day today in Cincinnati uh, after a long and strange winter. So, To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your interest in this topic? Sure. Um, I was born in uh, the mid-50s in, in, on the east side of Cleveland, uh, Ohio, uh, where I lived until I was about 11. And my father was transferred to a New York office from where he was working in Cleveland. And my family subsequently moved to a town in southern Connecticut, just outside of New York City. And I had the rest of my um, uh, uh, education, you know, up to college there. Uh, so I had two very different lives, one in Cleveland, one in southern Connecticut, one in, 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 in a very ethnic uh, environment, uh, the other in um, uh, a very um, non-ethnic environment, shall we say. Uh, uh, the uh, formative events that led me to this book are, are I would say, in general, two. Uh, one was um, uh, studying with Professor Rich, uh, the late Professor Richard Kennington, who had been uh, a, not only a student, but also a, a teaching assistant for Leo Strauss at the University of Chicago in the 50s. Uh, as a result of Kennington, uh, I, I learned to think and to read, but I was also introduced to the writings of Strauss. Um, and uh, to his conversations over the years with Strauss. Uh, the other uh, uh, events that led to this book were, were, were chancy. One was uh, a book by uh, the late David Lachterman called The Ethics of Geometry, uh, in which uh, the, the theme of which is the concept of mathematical construction as a way of distinguishing ancient and modern philosophy. And uh, in his uh, introduction to the book, he discusses Maimon, and he uh, has a, a brief quote uh, on Maimon commenting on Kant's theory of conceptual construction. I was doing my dissertation on, on Kantian aesthetics, and so had Kant on the brain when I read this, and I thought, you know, Lachtman is right. I mean, uh, or Maimon rather is right uh, about Kant. Uh, and so that got me interested in Maimon. And I read him on and off on my own. Uh, I was I was never able to teach a course in it. Uh, uh, we don't have a graduate program. So our courses are more generally focused uh, at, at Xavier. But I, on my own, I read his Ubi de Progressum de Philosophie on the progress of philosophy and then his his, his autobiography. Uh, which is a wonderful work, uh, actually. Um, later on in the uh, this century, in the 2000s, uh, uh, one of my colleagues, Gabe Gottlieb, who's a fine Fichte scholar, uh, renewed my interest in Maimon and sort of goaded me into translating a work called um, of Maimon's called Attempted a New Presentation 
of the uh, principle of morality and a new deduction of its of its reality, uh, which was subsequently published in the British Journal uh, with a brief uh, uh, commentary. And after that, I thought, I want to stay with Maimon and uh, stay with Maimon's ethical writings. Um, the difference between the ethical and the theoretical in Kant is, or I mean, in Maimon is, is pretty slim, but the essays toward the end of his life really shift in the direction of ethical concerns and away from commentaries on Kant, which is most of what he does uh, in his life. Uh, and so I decided to translate all the essays in the last two years of his life and then write, so, write a commentary about the, uh, those translations. And that that's the book. That's where it came from. So multiple influences led me over a few decades here. What are the main themes of this book? What uh, aims did you hope to accomplish through this volume? Well, the main theme uh, is the essays of Maimon's final two years. Um, they're brief essays, uh, as opposed to the rather large, uh, 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 some of the large books he writes, uh, uh, essay on transcendental philosophy, for example, philosophical dictionary, um, uh, conflicts uh, in in philosophy. These are really very dense and very interesting books. The his final essays are are shorter and some are incomplete. You could see he was intending uh, a longer work, but never was able to develop it. Um, the uh, so that the first theme is just to introduce um, non-German speaking readers to these essays because they're quite interesting. Uh, the other theme, the more general philosophical theme, is the uh, tension between, uh, uh, let's say, uh, Athens and Jerusalem, or between reason and revelation, which play out in his thought as a kind of contest between the, the um, between Maimonides and Kant, his two major uh, uh, philosophical, uh, or two of his major philosophical influences. Uh, so the book focuses on this general question, namely whether, in spite of Solomon Maimon's really impressive capacity for heresy, um, which he never tried to hide, uh, he remain, whether he remains in some way, in some essential way, a Jewish thinker. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Well, first off, uh, I'd like them to be moved to engage Maimon's writings in general. And uh, the place they should start is his autobiography. It is a wonderful uh, uh, book, and you should go out and purchase it right now. <laughs> Um, the, uh, and you won't be disappointed. It's an interesting book because it it was for for a very long time, really until quite recently, the only work of Maimon's in translation. It had been translated in the 19th century in in English. George Eliot read it and uh, uh, actually uh, has it in a scene from her book uh, Daniel Deronda. Leo Strauss read it. Other people read it. Um, but his work was really uh, uh, unknown except for the autobiography, which is also our principal source for a long time of knowledge about uh, uh, shtetl life in Poland during the 18th century. Uh, uh, after that, uh, the, I'd like the readers to uh, really engage Maimon's philosophical uh, concerns. And this question about the possibility of uh, reconciliation between uh, Jewish thought and 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 uh, uh, let's say you know philosophical thought more more generally uh, specifically uh, the strain of philosophy that comes to us from the Enlightenment and Kant. What was Maimon's relationship with traditional Judaism, 
And what was Maimon's attitude toward traditional Judaism? Uh, well, he was raised, uh, of course, uh, in a very traditional uh, Jewish uh, uh, family and was uh, educated educated uh, to be a rabbi. He was brilliant. He graduated yeshiva at 11, became uh, 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 at the age of 14 an itinerant rabbi in order to support his family. He had been married off at the age of 14 to help support his his uh, impoverished uh, parents. Uh, but at the same time, he starts uh, reading uh, some philosophy, well, first physics and mathematics, in which he develops an interest. And as his interest in that grows, his relationship to traditional Judaism becomes more fraught in a way. He starts searching for something. So he leaves um, his uh, uh, home uh, and, and uh, goes first to the court of the Magid of Mesrich and the, the new, what was then the new Hasidic movement. And he finds it very attractive in many ways. And it's there too that he's introduced to Kabbalah, which he's also, he also finds very interesting. Uh, but, but finally, not, it doesn't really satisfy him in, in other ways. Morally, he had uh, issues with, um, uh, with Hasidic life, uh, some of which he admired, some of which he found problematic. In any event, uh, he, at a certain point, realizes that um, he really wants to uh, um, depart traditional Judaism for philosophy. And so he, 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 mo he moves to Berlin. He walks to Berlin. Um, over the course of his life, he makes four separate trips to Berlin. Uh, uh, however, on the way, he's uh, to, ma to make money. Uh, he's working again as an itinerant rabbi and uh, teaching in, in yeshivas every uh, you know different places on his journey. So he was very blunt about declaring him about blaspheming. You know, he was not a uh, in his own mind a traditional Jew, and yet there are these Jewish elements that keep on influencing his thought, and that's what I found so interesting. You know, uh, they have especially influenced his reading of Kant. Um, which is in a way where he he fled after departing uh, this uh, traditional Judaism. So uh, his relationship to traditional Judaism is in short um, uh, uh, complicated. He saw tradi traditional Judaism as really a kind of superstition, uh, but intellectually it still stays with him. Can you say more about Maimon's attitude toward Kabbalah and Hasidism? Uh, sure. The uh, what he picks up from um, uh, from the court from the Magid and, and the Magid's teachings is uh, a notion of um, it's called a cosmism, uh, a belief that uh, human intellects are really uh, always participating in divine intellect, and uh, so there is a unity of intellect, uh, human and divine, in the cosmos. And he finds that notion very, very attractive. And it, it also, also because it, it, it dovetails with some of his uh, philosophical uh, readings, especially in Spinoza, uh, who, uh, who has a, a, a similar kind of doctrine. Uh, the other thing he picks up from uh, Kabbalah is, is, of course, the notion of the Tzim Tzum, the, the divine uh, self-limitation uh, at, at the start of creation. Uh, which he again reads in, 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 into Spinoza's uh, 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 substance mode relation in, in, in book one of Spinoza's ethics. He sees uh, again a kind of 
affinity between what Spinoza thought and then what uh, uh, Kabbalah was uh, was was teaching about about the nature of God, and so in general, the he, he picks up it from Hasidism and uh, Kabbalah uh, notions that really uh, help to cement his interest in in Spinoza in a way he sees Spinoza as 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 the um, uh, working out the fullest sense of those uh, uh, Hasidic uh, and Kabbalistic concepts. How did Maimon discover Immanuel Kant's writings? Well, yeah, interesting. It was, uh, he uh, was introduced to them by Moses Mendelssohn, who was, of course, the leading figure in the um, uh, in the Berlin uh, uh, Haskalah, the, the Jewish Enlightenment in Berlin, and uh, and a friend of Kant's. And of course, uh, Mendelssohn was uh, quite quite a celebrated thinker. Uh, he was involved in a famous um, Spinoza controversy um, involving uh, Jacobi and others, where he was accused of being a Spinozist, which meant a heretic, um, uh, in effect. Uh, in any event, um, uh, Maimon gets to Berlin uh, uh, after, I think, on his third trip, is introduced to uh, uh, Mendelssohn. Uh, at this point, uh, he had, Maimon had already studied on his own uh, Spinoza, Leibniz, Christian Wolff, who was a, 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 a very popular philosopher from that period, um, uh, connected with Leibniz, uh, and um, uh, had also uh, written about a, a number of writings of his own um, in Hebrew uh, uh, on uh, the most significant of which is a commentary on uh, Maimonides's More uh, Nebuchim, the Guide of the Perplexed. Uh, and Mendelssohn sees all this stuff and, and, and starts talking to him and realizes the depth of his insight and says, I'm, I'm going to really show you something now. I'm going to introduce you to the writings of Immanuel Kant. And what uh, uh, what follows is, uh, in a way, a, a commentary that uh, Maimon writes about Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, the first critique. And it goes under the title Essay on Transcendental Philosophy. Uh, and uh, eventually this, this uh, book... Uh, falls into the hands of Kant through uh, an associate of Mendelssohn's, Marcus Hertz, um, and uh, Kant initially wants nothing to do with it. You know, he says, I'm, I'm 60 years old. You expect me to read this big, thick tome um, Polish, published by a, a Polish rabbi? He said, uh, you know, forget about it. And, but, but then he looked at it and decided that Maimon was the greatest, most acute critic of his work and had to take him very, very seriously. So that it's a, it's a, a long story, but it was really my Mendelssohn who was responsible for introducing Maimon to Kant's writings, um, and once that happens, Maimon's own work really takes off. You know, he's got a philosophical, a clear philosophical direction now, um, which is to to immerse himself in, in Kant's thought, which he finds you know he finds compelling enough, and it's also the prevailing. Um, uh, the prevailing philosophy at the time and uh, uh, philosophical discourse in um, uh, Berlin uh, and, and elsewhere uh, in Germany at that 
uh, you know, toward the end of the uh, 18th century was entirely compassed by the works of uh, uh, Immanuel Kant. And so Maimon throws himself into the study of Kant by writing commentaries on Kant. That was his, his mode of getting inside of Kant's thought. Who is Father Chiguet? Ah, Father Chiguet is a figure who shows up uh, toward the end of Maimon's life. Uh, the last two years of his life, where, where these essays come from, uh, that I translated. Uh, he's living uh, in the in the in the uh, care of Kant uh, von Kalkreut, uh, uh, who had become a patron of his at this point. Many other people had abandoned him. As it turns out, Maimon led a rather dissolute life and could be a very difficult character. But Kalkreut takes him in, and Maimon is dying. And uh, uh, Father uh, Chege. Uh, Chege, who lives in the neighborhood as a Protestant uh, pastor, uh, befriends uh, Maimon uh, and enjoys his, his conversation. Maimon is brilliant, you know, and uh, uh, Chege decides to try to conv uh, convince Maimon uh, about the immortality of the soul and, the, and the, the reality of the next life. And so, he, but it fails utterly. So uh, there, Chege after Maimon's death, writes an account of the last hours of Solomon Maimon and their conversation and Maimon's uh, uh, final view, where Chagai, you know, he asks, uh, Maimon asks Father uh, Chagai, why, why should I believe in the immortality of the soul? And Chagai says, it will bring you peace. And Maimon responds, I am at peace. And those were his last words, apparently. You know, um, so they had a they had a, a, a brief but um, uh, significant friendship. Now, one thing I should mention too: uh, this uh, account that Chagai writes about his last Maimon's last hours resembles, to a very high degree, another literary work by uh, Boswell, who was, uh, of course, a famous biographer of, of Samuel Johnson, uh, and it's a Boswell's account of David Hume's last hours, where, in effect, Boswell um, asks, you know, Hume, after all of your thought, uh, all of your work, um, do you believe in God now? And Hume really brushes him off. And in, in Chege's account, he's sort of like Boswell, asking the same kind of questions of, of Maimon, but with, with a, a somewhat different answer. But uh, I, I have to wonder how... Um, uh, whether Chagai self-consciously modeled his account of Maimon's last hours on Boswell's account of Hume's last hours. And I think it's, I think it's plausible. Can you comment on Maimon's earliest Torah writings? What does he say? Which sources was he drawn to? Yes. Uh, he, he writes a, a work uh, on, on his way from Poland to uh, Berlin uh, called Heshek Shilomo. Uh, it, it is not yet in translation. The only copy of the manuscript I'm aware of is in the uh, uh, Israel National Library in Jerusalem. Uh, and it's uh, a series of essays on various topics. Uh, uh, a couple essays on physics and mathematics, and then uh, a, a commentary on... Um, uh, uh, it's a partial commentary on, uh, I believe, only part one of uh, um, uh, uh, Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed. 
And uh, again, his goal is, is, it's a pretty straightforward commentary. But what's interesting is that he, in his autobiography, he expands that early commentary. And uh, he um, calls Maimonides' guide a, a theological political treatise. Uh, and that, of course, is a title of a work by Spinoza, the Theological Political Treatise. And that ends up, uh, dec centuries later, actually, uh, uh, when Leo Strauss comes across that uh, uh, phrase in, uh, in Maimon's autobiography, uh, he reads, he, Strauss begins to read Maimonides' uh, guide as a theological political treatise. In any event, he's starting to work out that particular way of thinking about Maimonides, that Maimonides's guide is not necessarily a pious work. It is, it, it, it might be a way of, uh, it, it has, uh, exoterically, it might be pious, but esoterically, it uh, seems to champion uh, reason over revelation in a way. Um, and that, that's a theme that, that, that haunts my, uh, Maimon's work for the rest of his career, really. What is Maimon's contribution to the study of ethics? Well, uh, primarily by way of critiquing Kant. Um, uh, the uh, Kant, of course, is, uh, as I mentioned, the, uh, the potent thinker of Maimon's age. And uh, Kant's uh, moral philosophy, which you can get, um, which, he, which he offers in a few different venues, uh, the, his second critique, the critique of practical reason, Practical means for Kant ethical, um, and then uh, in a, a, a sort of more condensed form, a work called Foundations for a Metaphysics of Morals, uh, which is a, 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 a good introduction, I think, to Kant's thought in general and especially his his moral philosophy. And Kant's moral philosophy is um, an alternative to a let's say a traditional, but by which I mean Aristotelian way of thinking about ethics. Um, for Aristotle, action is always in, uh, uh, action is with an eye to an end. So choice, moral choices are determined uh, by the ends uh, that we aim at. Um, the aim, the end is always given, it's happiness. The, uh, the moral choice is always a means to that end. Uh, Kant rejects this notion on the premise that any engagement with uh, any, any consideration of an end of something you're trying to achieve by means of your action risks engaging your self-interest to such a degree that your 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 moral your your pure moral intention could very easily be corrupted by that self-interest and so he indicates that the only thing that is good in the entire cosmos is a good will and it's the perfection of the will by means of reason uh, and its isolation from passions and inclinations that might corrupt it, that concerns Kant's uh, moral philosophy. So in, in brief, that's that's his position. So there's a very clear breach in Kant's uh, ethical thought between what we intend to do and what is, between the ought and the is. Maimon commenting on Kant tries to bring these two things together, the is and the ought. In, in one of the essays uh, to the end of his life, uh, the essay, The Great Personage, in his view, that's what Moses achieves, a vision of God that brings together what is the case with what ought to be the case, or uh, uh, the human desire for happiness and gratification on the one hand with, uh, uh, an uncondition with unconditional freedom, you know, uh, freedom of the will. 
the it's the same issue, by the way, that compels his theoretical thought, bringing together the is and the ought. Uh, the, the, what uh, uh, in, in in Maimon's writings and Kant's writing is the quid juris and the quid facti. Quid juris, what is what is to be done? What is legislated? And uh, uh, quid facti, what is the case? You know, there always seems to be a breach between these things, between human freedom and the and the, and the physical world, the phenomenal world. Uh, in commenting on Kant's writings, Maimon is trying to find ways of healing that breach. Kant himself tries to do this. His aesthetics is uh, 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 an example of his trying to bridge the gap between uh, freedom and uh, nature. So is uh, his interest in Kant's interest in history. Maimon's attempt is purely on the theoretical plane, and that's where he where his engagement with Maimonides helps him. Um, he agrees with Kant about the, uh, uh, the the necessity of moral purity. He agrees, on the other hand, with Maimon that the end of human life is happiness and that happiness consists in the highest perfection of humanity and that highest perfection is knowledge of the truth. So the goal of ethics it, it is not just a pure will for Maimon. It's, it's uh, the... Uh, um, expansion of human rationality to the highest possible degree, which he calls the highest determination of humanity. Would you like to comment on the assistance you received from individuals that you thank in your acknowledgments? How did you oh, benefit from them? Would you like to thank anyone publicly and personally? Uh, yes, sure. Uh, uh, first of all, with regard to the production of the book itself, I have to thank uh, professors David Aaron and uh, Jason Kalman from Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, who were editors at the press and really very encouraging of the project. Uh, I'd also like to thank, uh, as I mentioned before, my, my colleague and friend Gabe Gottlieb, who really, uh, again, goaded me into uh, pursuing Maimon studies, and uh, for, uh, for which goad I am extremely grateful. I'd also especially like to thank uh, Sonia Rethi, my editor at HUC Press. Uh, without her uh, acute intelligence and uh, uh, knowledge of literature, philosophy, languages, uh, the, the book wouldn't be half as, as, as good as it is. Uh, if it's any good at all, uh, that's a result of Sonia's uh, uh, excellent uh, critiques and improve, uh, recommendations for improvement. Uh, that's... Um, uh, those are the people most directly responsible for, uh, for, for this work. What was Maimon's reputation in his own time and context? How mm. was he perceived by his peers and co-religionists? Well, his co-religionists, well, it, there are two groups of co-religionists. The, uh, the traditional uh, Jewish communities that he encounters um, in his youth and then on his uh, journeys to um, uh, Berlin, uh, where he's serving as a rabbi, uh, and then of course the 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 members of the Haskalah, who are uh, extremely different. In fact, when when Maimon receives an invitation from Mendelssohn to visit him, uh, Maimon reports in his autobiography he opens the door to Mendelssohn's house and he sees this splendid house and these gentlemen dressed in really you know bourgeois finery, and he said. I closed the door and left. He didn't feel that he belonged at all to that world. And Mendelssohn went out and grabbed him and brought him back in. Uh, interest. So to those people, not, not to Mendelssohn, who could see Maimon for who he was, uh, but to Mendelssohn's other students, the Maskilim there, 
in, in his uh, circle, they thought that Maimon was some uh, what country bumpkin. Uh, Marcus Hertz, uh, one of uh, uh, Mendelssohn's students and colleagues, and also a colleague and student of, of, of Kant, referred to uh, Maimon as a Tieren, a sprechendes Tier, no, a redendes Tier, excuse me, a, a talking animal, you know, uh, because he seemed so crude in his manners. He would gesticulate wildly. He was poorly dressed. He had a funny accent because German was uh, probably his third language. So he was speaking it with a Yiddish accent, a Yiddish Polish accent. Um, uh, it wasn't until uh, Maimon really impressed them with his intellect that they took him seriously. But only as long as Mendelssohn was alive, because after Mendelssohn dies, uh, uh, Maimon, who could really use their support, um, they they have nothing to do with him anymore, uh, because of his you know his crudity and his shtetl manners and all that. Now, with regard to traditional Jewish communities, Maimon tells a story about right before he enters Berlin on his first trip, he is um, uh, uh, saved from near 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 death from starvation and exposure by uh, a rabbi. Uh, who uh, realizes after a brief conversation how brilliant Maimon is, brings him into the yeshiva and makes him a makes him a, a, a teacher in the yeshiva there. So uh, Maimon has some success and he becomes very popular for a few months doing this until he decides to take aside some of the more brilliant students and introduce them to Maimonides' guide. The guide of the perplexed remains a very controversial work in Judaism. And uh, in, the, in, those, uh, 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 in those communities, uh, the guide was, not, was considered borderline heresy. And so uh, basically he was kicked out. Now, before he was kicked out of that community, he has a few interesting stories to tell about it. One in particular, which I think is indicative, that there was a, um, a community hall in the village and uh, uh, atop one of the doors were uh, stag's horns. And uh, the, the thought, the rumor was if you touched one, they would explode, you know, and you would die and the community hall would be uh, destroyed. And my mom thought this was just superstitious rubbish. And so one day he's, he's in front of this hall and with all the people. And he says, I'm going to prove to you there's nothing to fear here. And he, he touches the stag's horn. And of course, nothing happens. But rather than see him as a kind of, uh, you know, redeemer from this superstition, they hate him for it, and they drive him out of town, you know. Um, so he didn't fit in anywhere. He didn't fit in with the enlightened Haskalah in, in Berlin. He didn't fit in with traditional Judaism. Uh, he had a very, a very, a very lonely life in this in this respect. He had, a, over the course of his life, a handful of uh, good friends who helped him. But otherwise, he was uh, as Gideon Freudenthal, who I think is the dean of Maimon scholars internationally, writes. Uh, Maimon was really caught between a thinker caught between two worlds uh, and uh, never easily at home in either. In one of his essays. Maimon writes as follows, you quote him as follows, all mm -hmm. human beings strive after happiness as the epitome of all their possible ends. Through their theoretical reason, which determines the causal connection of things and their relations to one another as means and ends, they recognize their connection with one another in mm -hmm. a society 
as the only means to achieve that happiness as completely as is possible for them. A social condition, however, where through the interaction of the members with one another, the common end should be promoted, is only possible as a legal condition. Legality of actions is therefore recognized as a condition for the possibility of a social connection, not just legality in general, but a complete and certain legality extending to all actions and inevitable in all cases, that is, a legality that can be thought as a necessary consequence of the morality of dispositions. Therefore, morality is not required, but rather the same legality that is a consequence of the intrinsically ambiguous morality. Mm-hmm. Morality is merely an idea serving a regulative use. This is the true original fact of the common human reason. But since individuals in the advancing state of societies originally intended to demand morality, mm-hmm. it must be just as disconcerting that all, more or less, love money in itself, which is, according to the well-known law of the association of ideas, can easily be explained. This is from page 108. Yes. Can you say more about this? Sure. Um, Forgive me, too, if I consult some notes um, uh, on this uh, passage. the passage itself is taken from an essay called The Moral Skeptic. It's one of the better known uh, essays of Maimon's last couple of years. And it's uh, he composes it as a direct challenge to Kant. Uh, it's his most, uh, he's most, he is his most critical of Kant in this particular essay. Uh, the goal of which is to show that there's really no theoretical difference between moral dogmatism or the kind of principled morality you get in Kant and moral skepticism which wants to reject all of that for basic human motivations like love and happiness. So, uh, and, and he's he's arguing here using Kantian terminology, legality of actions, morality of dispositions, things like this. So the language would be familiar to a Kantian. Um, uh, in brief, what Maimon wants to argue is that all human beings desire happiness. And their reason tells them that achieving happiness requires society. Uh, Only in community with others can we really uh, uh, achieve the happiness that we seek as completely as possible. But that's, you know, uh, if if you're totally alone, you can't physically sustain yourself. You need others for that. You need conversation because we're rational beings and such. So community turns out to be necessary. But um, the social conditions that promote happiness if they're to be successful, will have to become laws. Uh, civil society therefore presupposes what he calls legality of actions. But because law arises in part from what Maimon calls the morality of dispositions, namely the moral implications of your character and your inclinations uh, and interests, and not just pure theoretical reason, legality may arise from morally ambiguous dispositions rather than from an abstemious rationality, let us say, free from any taint of interest or inclination. Um, morality as such, morality in the abstract, doesn't seem to affect specific social legislation. It only serves a general or regulative use. Um, morality, uh, you know, for example, you really shouldn't do that, you know, <laughs> or it's a way of critiquing moral judgments. 
uh, is what he means here. Uh, morality, therefore, doesn't constitute law. It merely regulates or directs applications of law. Uh, and that's why we see the strange phenomenon of disjunctions between morality and law. I mean, you know, forget about my mod for a moment. We see them all the time in civil society, right? You know, the, the law commands one thing, but what it commands might not be moral from a certain, from another point of view, um, and vice versa. What's moral might not necessarily be legal or legally sanctioned. Uh, so Maimon observes, in fact, that the more advanced a society, the more it praises morality, while still being impelled by really base motives like greed, which is a kind of almost Rousseauian thought about civilization, that civilization and, and its progress masks uh, uh, deeper sorts of moral flaws. Um, in short, in, in sum, legality and morality sometimes diverge, and this divergence, once we witness it, fuels moral skepticism. So it's a skepticism engendered by Kant's insistence on uh, the uh, uh, identification of law, a rational law, as the core of moral action. What was Maimon's perspective on Stoicism? Uh, it's uh, yeah, Stoicism, it's, he's, he's rather interesting, I think. Um, he uh, saw himself as a kind of Stoic. Um, and... Uh, in particular, I'm, I'm trying to, let me find, I'm, I'm looking for a passage where I can read. Yeah, here we go. He indicates that um, uh, Stoicism is uh, the, the sum of his own morality. He, him, he is a Stoic. Now, what does he mean by Stoicism? Uh, in ancient Stoic thought, the sort you get in, you know, uh, Seneca, Repictetus, Stoicism uh, means uh sort of according yourself, assimilating yourself to what is by nature um, and resisting certain kinds of passions that um, will allow you to direct yourself toward higher things that your nature, uh, 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 that human nature uh, moves us toward. So for, for, for uh, Maimonides, and this is something he actually picks up from his time in, in, in the court of the Magid, um, for Maimonides, Stoicism means self-control. And it's a self-control that exhibits itself in what he calls, quote, the power to determine the will against all sensuous distractions. See, that sounds in a way like Kant. And I think that's what attracts it, uh, part of what attracts him to Kant uh, as, and reinforces his, his belief in Stoicism. It, but he also notes that um, uh, as a result of, 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 of uh, advocating self-restraint, uh, Stoicism liberates you for the pursuit of truth without any kinds of distractions. In this respect, uh, Stoicism al allows you uh, an intensification of pleasure because it allows you to pursue the highest pleasures, which are the pleasures of knowledge uh, and, and, and philosophy. And in fact, he remarks about what he calls the quote-unquote highest class of uh, Hasidim in the court of the Megid, um, quote, the strict Stoicism they practice enhances and ennobles their experience of pleasure, something that becomes increasingly dulled among vulgar Epicureans. Strangely, the Epicurean pursuit of pleasure and the Stoic pursuit of restraint he sees as in a way compatible. Stoic restraint is for the sake of liberating the highest possible pleasures, the, the ones that ennoble us as human beings, the pursuit of truth again and the acquisition of knowledge. As a result, Maimon Stoicism, we might call it kind of provisional Stoicism. It, it's a res restraint 
restraint of, of, of our passions and our, our, our pursuit of pleasures uh, for the sake of uh, achieving what he calls the highest determination of man, which is also the greatest possible pleasure. Um, I mentioned as an aside that as a Stoic, Maimon was a horrific failure. Uh, he, he, in fact, led a rather dissolute life, which is uh, uh, the details of which were responsible for a kind of break he had with Mendelssohn and Mendelssohn's uh, uh, disciples. And that, that's, in fact, where the title to the book arises from that, uh, that uh, break. Uh, the word apikoros means Epicurean, literally, but it also means heretic. There's a scene where Mendelssohn confronts Maimon about his, his, his drinking and his uh, uh, habit of visiting houses of ill repute and uh, uh, tries to correct Maimon about this. And Maimon's response, part of his response is, oh, you know, we're all Epicureans. Now, what, what's, what's curious is he's playing, it's a double entendre, because to be Epicurean means to be pleasure-seeking, but in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for Epicurean, apikoros, means to be a heretic. So he's both, he's calling the members of the Haskalah both pleasure-seeking and heretics at the same time. His, it's his way of saying, you know, you might think you're different from me, but you're absolutely no different from me whatsoever, which says something about his concept, Maimon's concept of philosophy, once you engage it in its in its strictest sense, uh, you're going to be at odds with with uh, orthodox belief. In another one of his essays, Maimon writes as follows: mm -hmm. Even so, the question concerning the cause of moral good and evil in human nature, if its answer is to be practical, in no way means specifying a single being, just like Leibniz in his Theodicy according to a metaphysical theology, or two beings, like Bale is inclined to assume, in accordance with the Manichaeans, as an actual or agent cause of moral good and evil. This does not bring us one step closer to our moral improvement. Rather, the task is, after a higher investigation concerning the moral nature of humanity, to make it comprehensible how the power of desire which by its very nature always has the good as its object, can sometimes choose evil. How is it said that in these cases evil has the appearance of the good? But where does this inevitable appearance come from? For it must be inevitable, since otherwise the subject as a rational being that has the true good for an object would avoid it. The origin of this appearance is now to be uncovered, and, as far as this appearance is concerned, is its effect destroyed. One therefore sees that this question belongs a little before the judgment seat of a rational theology, as before an irrational positive theology, but rather belongs before a pragmatic anthropology anthropology. Now everything must be derived from the idea of the absolute freedom of the will in contrast with the idea of natural necessity. And here, God comes into play as little as the devil. It must be shown that the origin of the moral good in the deepest sense, which means both what makes an individual morally good and worthy of happiness, and what makes his free action genuinely a part of happiness, is 
to be sought in the agreement of the idea of absolute freedom with the idea of necessity according to laws of nature, since the individual properly determines the limits of the use of each of these ideas, just as the origin of moral evil, also in the deepest sense, is to be sought in the contrast between both these ideas by extending one or the other beyond the respective limits of their use. This is from pages 129 and 130. Can you interpret this passage for us? I'll give it a shot. It's a very difficult and dense passage. Um, as I understand it, Maimon's basic question is this. How, if the good is the object of our power of desire, as, as Kant taught, can human beings ever choose evil? Now, we just step away from Maimon for a moment. That's a very good question, you know? How is it when, when someone performs an evil act, are they, are they choosing that evil act because they think it's evil or because they think it's a good? And the answer seems to be because they think it's a good. So how does anything turn out to be evil? What is it that corrupts our judgment? And he leads this with... He leads his 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 art his explanation of this phenomenon with with two positing two solutions, both of which he rejects. First is Leibniz, the second is Bales. Leibniz's argument in the Theodicy makes God, in effect, the cause of evil and good. And in, in brief, the argument works this way: if God is the cause of the world, and if God is both omniscient and omnipotent, and therefore capable of having created other possible worlds. And if evil exists in this one, the one he actually created, then this world must be the best of all possible worlds, since he could have chosen other ones. Uh, so if there's evil in it, it must be a result of God's will, and therefore, in some sense, acceptable or good. I mean, this is the position that Voltaire sends up in Candide, uh, specifically. Okay, um, Bale's view, which is a response to Leibniz, is uh, you can find in his dictionary, and it takes the form of a dialogue between uh, uh, two uh, two people, Melissus and interestingly Zoroaster, uh, the, the the prophet of uh, Zoroastrianism. Uh, Bale puts his solution into Zoroaster's mouth. There must be two principles at work: one that explains the good, and the other that explains the evil. So that Bale's solution looks like a kind of Manichaeanism almost. And the reason he adopts this is because a priori reasons, just purely rational reasons that insist on God's uh, omnibenevolence uh, are really contradicted by the human experience of physical evil. If God is all good, why does anybody suffer? And so you need to posit two principles. Now, those, the, those are the prevailing schools of thought from Maimon's point of view. He proposes a different solution, uh, or at least he gives conditions for discovering a different solution. And his argument works like this. If human beings choose evil in spite of their inclination to the good, then evil in such cases must appear like the good. It must have the, the look of goodness. In that case, we need to explain why that happens. That is, why a manifest evil can appear to be good. And this question, from my mind, is not theological, but he calls it anthropological. And it's, he's using this term, in, in, in the sense in which Kant uses the term anthropological. Um, uh, namely, just it concerns human character and action and, and, and different influences on, 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 on human motivations. Uh, uh, namely, required, so to solve the problem of how the, how the, the evil can adopt the appearance of the good requires an investigation into how different experiences 
and different conventions color our sense of what's good. Now, my mom then argues that the issue is really what, what, the, what is the uh, origin of the good rather than of evil. And the origin of good, he states, following Kant, must lie in the absolute freedom of the will. Otherwise, it's not going to be a pure good. It has to be uh, a freedom in harmony with laws governing uh, uh, our, our natural necessities. Conversely, evil must stem from a breach between the freedom of the will and natural necessity. So when we can't get our moral choosing um, aligned with the necessities that uh, impinge upon our ability to, to do good in, 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 in the real world, there's a problem, you know. Uh, so God doesn't create evil, in, you know, Maimon concludes, and God is not the cause of evil. In fact, God, does, God doesn't even have to come into the picture. Um, that's why he, he, he writes rather, rather cheekily, God comes into play as little as the devil, you know. Um, uh, the origin of good and evil now rests with how our free wills relate to, to, the, uh, the, to the natural world, to the physical world, the world of our passions, and to the circumstances that impede our freedom. For example, you know, our passions, natural inclinations, and interests. Again, that's this general problem again. It's an expression of this general problem of, of, of trying to, to weave together the, what ought to to be and what is um, freedom with, you know, natural necessity, the opposite of freedom that constrains us. Morality belongs to the sphere of freedom, but it has to be effective in the physical world. So somehow the ought and the is have to be brought together. The gap between them is the cause of evil, according to this passage. What is Maimon's legacy in 19th, 20th and 21st century Jewish thought and philosophy? Yeah. Interesting. So as I mentioned, the only work of his that's you know, that's translated into English is his autobiography, and that, that remains the case for well into the 20th century. However, um, his works, his autobiography, and really that was about the only work that was extant that anyone was reading. The first co you know uh, collected works of uh, Maimon was not until the 1960s. You know, the, the man died in 1800, so it's quite a long time. Um, the 19th century begins uh, uh, with attention to Maimon, uh, Fichte in particular, or specifically, who considers Maimon the great thinker of his generation, who has completely revised the way in which Kant is to be understood, and, and, and writes that, you know, uh, future generations will mock us for neglecting his uh, Maimon's work. So he gets a huge boost from Fichte, who assimilates many of his, uh, many of Maimon's ideas and passes them on then to uh, uh, the movement that becomes German idealism outside of uh, conventional philosophy. But Maimon's name is lost in all of that, by the way, you know, so Maimon never gets credit for anything after Fichte. Um, the uh, outside of, of, of philosophy, as the, the the new Zionist movement that's that's arising in in, in, in Central, especially in, in Eastern Europe, some of its uh, founders are really attracted to uh, Maimon's writings, and they mention Maimon. They mention him uh, in particular as an example of, uh, as Hannah Arendt put it, and also used uh, invoked Maimon's name in this respect. The, the, the Jew as pariah, you know, and uh, Maimon was the summary example of that. His entire life. Uh, seemed uh, to uh, express that. Uh, so he becomes a kind of inspiration to secular Zionism, 
and cultural Zionism, especially um, uh, Ahad, uh, Ahad Ha'am is, uh, uh, reads him. I don't know how deeply uh, Ha'am read him, but he was influenced by Maimon. He mentions Maimon in a few places. Uh, in the 20th century, of course, as I mentioned before, Leo Strauss comes across uh, Maimon's autobiography and it reorients him, it reorients Strauss to the, uh, how to read Maimonides. Uh, Strauss mentions this only in a footnote. Um, I don't recall which book it is now of Strauss's, but uh, that then itself is, is, is an enormously influential moment. Um, Walter Benjamin, uh, uh, around the same time, in, in the, a little earlier, in the preface, the first preface that was never published to his um, uh, work, uh, The Origin of German Tragic Drama, uses an, uh, an interpretation of a biblical event um, that is really found in Maimon's autobiography. So, and he mentions Maimon. So you have this scattering of thinkers who read the autobiography and pick up isolated ideas from it. Interestingly to me, um, the, the author Chaim Potok uh, uh, wrote his doctoral dissertation at UPenn about Maimon, and in fact, uh, admitted to modeling the, the Daniel character in The Chosen after Maimon. You know, uh, uh, Hannah Arendt, as I said, uses Maimon as an example of the Jew as pariah. But in, throughout all of this time, there is no sustained study of Maimon's work. That, that is a fairly recent development, actually. And I think an important one. Can you comment on Maimon's debt to the god of the perplexed by Maimonides? Yes. Um, what, he, what he gleans from Maimonides, well, initially what he gets from Maimonides is uh, uh, an introduction to philosophy a genuine introduction to philosophy uh, that shows, that convinces Maimon that Judaism is, as it were, the cave out of which one has to proceed to true philosophy. And that's how, in general, how he understands the guide. It's a way similar to the way Strauss understands the guide, uh, for example, in his commentary on the Shlomo Pinas translation. Uh, in any event, um, what Maimonides convinces him of is the, the uh, the end, or what Maimon calls the highest determination of, 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 of human being, which is not the good, it's the true, or at least the good and the true sort of merge here. Um, the, the highest uh, uh, perfection human beings can, uh, uh, can live for is uh, a rational perfection. So philosophy is the best way of life. Uh, and that's how that that's what Maimon gets from uh, from Maimonides. So obviously, this is a very controversial way of reading Maimonides. He also uh, gleans from Maimonides uh, the the secondary nature of uh, uh, moral virtue. Um, uh, so I don't. I this is I can't recall where this appears in the guide. I, I think it's it might be in the last chapter. Or, an ultimate chapter of book three of the guide where Maimonides, uh, not, not literally, but in effect says, you know, moderation is a virtue because you can't think if you're drunk all the time, you know? Um, so namely the moral virtues uh, make possible the intellectual virtues, which is a, um, a thesis that comes directly out of Aristotle's ethics that Maimonides uh, uh, accepts. Uh, and uh, at least that's the way Maimonides and other uh, radical Aristotelians of the Middle Ages uh, 
uh, interpret Aristotle. Uh, and uh, Maimon accepts that interpretation. So when he, when he comes to read Kant, he's reading him through the lens of those convictions, that there is a highest perfection to humanity after all, uh, and that's an intellectual perfection, and everything else, everything about, uh, else in human life is subordinate to that perfection and, and, and is merely a means for, it to, for striving for that perfection. So that means pol uh, morality for him is just as he, uh, and he's paraphrasing Maimonides when he says this, morality, uh, albeit a Stoic one, is for the sake of um, uh, ma maintaining, you know, uh, not only restricting, you know, pleasures that distract us from, from pursuit of truth, but also for holding certain conventions together necessary for civil society. So morality is really a function of uh, uh, the political life and social convention for him. It's clearly secondary to philosophical um, uh, excellence. And so you need more, you need morality, um, uh, but um, only on behalf of something higher. And he's getting that directly from Maimonides. He, the, he literally paraphrases the final uh, uh, several paragraphs out of the final chapter of the guide um, to make this point. Uh, he does that in his autobiography. Uh, it's it's quite uh, quite stunning. <laughs> There's another quotation I'd be curious to ask you about, which is on pages 16 and 17. Mm -hmm. You write as follows: In spite of his manifestly Maimonidean commitments, Maimon's touchstone, both for the basic framework and nomenclature, in light of which he addressed moral philosophy, remained Kant's. Mm -hmm. Thus, we find in Maimon familiar Kantian themes the opposition between duty and inclination mm -hmm. and with this opposition the corresponding problem of motives mm -hmm. the emphasis against spinoza to whom he is elsewhere indebted on the freedom of the will the identification of the categorical to categorical imperative as the supreme principle of morality mm -hmm. and the problem of establishing its universal validity Yet Maimon's divergences from Kant in matters of morality, as we have seen, are at least as prolific as his affinities, if not more so. These divergences arise principally in two interrelated ways. First, Maimon rejects, as we have seen, Kant's subordination of the theoretical to the practical under the influence of Maimonides. Second, and connected to this reason of the primacy of the practical, Maimon received, revives notions of happiness and perfection Kant had banished from the charmed circle of moral worthiness. For Kant, happiness and morality are famously at odds. While morality must possess universal validity, happiness as an empirical principle is inseparable from instances of private gratification. Concepts of happiness are thus invariably tainted by self-interest as kant puts it in his foundations the principle of happiness is the most objectionable of all empirical principles because it bases moral obedience on incentives quote-unquote on incentives that undermine and destroy all its sublimity for an action to possess moral worth according to kant it must be free from any and all inclinations that is from any in engagement with the pleasures or determination by ends that appeal to our self-interest. And for Kant, all end-directed activity is tainted by self-interest. Mm -hmm. Moral 
worth is henceforth action in obedience to a categorical imperative that commands as if the motive for our action could become a universal law. Mm -hmm. Duty, obedience, and respect for law are to silence our passions and inclinations on behalf, not of happiness, but of moral worthiness to be happy. Mm -hmm. Can you clarify what is meant in this passage? Sure. Um, the um, <clears throat> This passage concerns mainly um, Kantian philosophy, uh, because, you know, the the question for me that that Maimon's writings raised for me is he is he uh, principally a Maimonidean uh, uh, critiquing Kant or is he principally a, a Kantian who has you know some uh, uh, influence uh, prior influence from Maimonides you know it's what what is strongest in him and uh, in spite of uh, all the uh, Maimonidean influences you find in Kant, and I, I think they're they're quite significant. In fact, he remains, uh, at least on the philosophical plane, a kind of Kantian. He adopts Kant's uh, terminology and he approaches uh, questions, both theoretical and practical, through the lens of Kantian philosophy. Um, and uh, the thesis of my book is that um, Maimon's Kantian commitments, uh, at least within the ambit of, of, of Maimon's moral philosophy, are really subordinate to his commitment to Maimonides. So Maimonides is in the lead here. Um, so if that's the case, I, I noticed two principal divergences then from Kant uh, in Maimon's writings, in his ethical writings. Uh, and I, I like to argue that these divergences really stem from Maimonides' influence. The, in the first, Maimon rejects Kant's insistence on what gets called the primacy of the practical or the ethical over the theoretical. Um, I, I think that's clear from what I, I, other things I've said in the uh, the interview uh, this morning. And second, he rejects Kant's he rejects Maimon rejects Kant's rejection of happiness um, as a moral end for human beings. And uh, the, the reason for this is that, um, it's, and that's this is what takes up the rest of the passage, uh, has to do with the basic rudiments of Kantian moral thought, um, where the goal of morality for Kant isn't happiness, it's worthiness to be happy. Just you just pause with that. Think of all the people in the world who seem to be happy, but really haven't earned it. I mean, they're, they're, they're horrible human beings and they're leading delightful lives, you know. So Kant wants to, you know, suggest that worthiness to be happy is a higher goal than just happiness because happiness can be tainted by self-interest. All happiness reduces for Kant to uh, self-interest. Um, so um, to attain um, moral worth, one must have an absolutely free and pure will uh, consideration, therefore, the ends of actions, the reasons we do what we do, or what we try to get by means of our actions, uh, will ultimately trigger our passions and inclinations um, in ways that are going to corrupt the, our, our freedom of will. So, so the solution for preserving freedom of the will is to excise the will from influence by passion and inclination and interest, and um, tie it to uh, rational and therefore universal laws that ignore the specific conditions in which we're acting and the specific ends for the sake of which we act uh, uh, on behalf of a, uh, a, a, a universal or categorical intention 
to which we are now duty bound. Hence, the categorical imperative. So moral principle must take the form of, of, of laws. It has, to, as he says, we have to act as if uh, the, the motive for our action could become a universal law of nature. So for example, what Kant means by that is, you know, you're, you're faced with a moral dilemma. Should I lie to extract myself from a very difficult situation? Um, well, could you will a universal law to lie? If, you, uh, if there were such a law, you'd never know when anyone was telling the truth. Therefore, under no circumstances ever, categorically, you do not lie. So this is a, 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 a moral position of utmost principle. Um, uh, moral, and, and this is what gains you moral worth. It's the absolute purity of your actions. Maimon rejects this position because of the breach that, that it fosters between what ought to be the categorical, categorical imperative, the moral law on the one hand, and um, uh, uh, what is the case. The fact that human beings are also legitimately compelled by the desire to be happy. And again, just about all the writings uh, that, that address this issue uh, take that Maimonidean, uh, uh, Aristotelian uh, uh, framework for correcting uh, Kant's abstemious rejection of passion and inclination for the, the, the charmed spheres, say, of, of moral worth. I'm How did Maimon? Oh, sorry. How did Maimon perceive the interrelation and interconnection between Spinoza and Maimonides? Well, in, you know, again, that's a very complicated question, and um, I uh, I will defer to others uh, uh, on this issue. Uh, there's a wonderful essay by uh, Carlos Frankel, uh, for example, on uh, Maimon's um, Spinozism. Uh, uh, in relation to Maimonides. Uh, others also have written about this. Uh, in any event, as I understand it, it's it's that uh, he, he ends up reading, um, he, I, I think chronologically, he's, he, he's, he encounters Maimonides before he encounters Spinoza's writings. And uh, But when he encounters Spinoza's writings, especially armed with his experience in the court of the Magid and his introduction to Kabbalah, he... Uh, sees affinities between Kabbalah and Spinoza, and therefore, by extension, Spinoza and Maimonides. Not that Maimonides was a Kabbalist or anything like that, but he sees a strain of Jewish thought that um, connects Spinoza with Maimonides. And th th that strain focuses on one thing in particular, intellectual perfection as the highest, uh, as the highest good uh, of humanity. And so he sees a compatibility as a result between uh, Spinoza and Maimonides on, on, on this issue of intellectual perfection. Uh, there are other, uh, other points of contact, uh, contact too, um, uh, that, that follow from that um, uh, elevation of intellectual perfection as the highest, uh, the highest human uh, good. Um, but Maimonides and Spinoza share that from his point of view. So Spinoza is therefore some kind, a, a variety of Maimonidean, which is somewhat ironic from a certain point of view, because if you read, you know, uh, the, the first third, not the first half of uh, Maimonides's theological, or I mean Spinoza's theological political treatise, he attacks Maimonides, and in particular Maimonides's view of prophecy. Um, uh, so uh, he wants to, Spinoza wants to amend uh, Maimonides in a way, but he, he accepts certain basic presuppositions from Maimonides. Uh, so his, once again, Spinoza's framework is 
shaped in, 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 in part by Maimonides. It's also shaped by, by, by Descartes uh, to, to a significant degree, and hence departures you know, uh, be, between Spinoza and Maimonides. Maimonides is not a Cartesian. <laughs> what was the relationship between Moses Mendelssohn and Solomon Maimon? Can you elaborate? I can. Um, in, in the guide, and uh, I'm, I'm just going to read this uh, very briefly. This is from, or, uh, not the guide, excuse me, uh, Maimon's autobiography. It's in the 12th chapter of the second half, the second part of the autobiography. is titled Mendelssohn, a chapter dedicated to the memory of a great friend. And then he subtitles that, how shall we keep in or limit our grief? So dear to us was this man. The high praise, you know, he, he held uh, uh, Mendelssohn in very, very high esteem. Um, uh, you know, to Mendelssohn, he, he admits he, he owes really um, his own intellectual, uh, his own theoretical development. On the other hand, he did have problems with Mendelssohn's thought. Um, he uh, <clears throat> he praises in, in this very chapter I just mentioned, he praises uh, Mendelssohn for his, his, his acuteness, his ability to draw fine distinctions. He calls him a great Talmudist, but at no, at, at no point does he call him a great philosopher. Uh, and says, you know, he, he makes important contributions to philosophy, but comes up with no systematic philosophy of his own. Um, the, uh, um, so on the one hand, Maimon is indebted to Mendelssohn and, and, and never loses his affection for Mendelssohn, even though at a certain point Mendelssohn gives him the boot because of his behavior. Um, on the other hand, Maimon thought that Mendelssohn wasn't philosophical enough. He didn't go far enough with his notion of intellectual perfection. His, 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 his intellectual framework was still too Leibnizian, you know, uh, uh, too much influenced by Leibniz and Christian Wolff um, and a kind of traditional metaphysics to really uh, accept the rationale, the, the, the extremity uh, of um, or the radicality of the philosophical life. And there's one early instance of this in, in, in Maimon's first published work called um, An Example of um, Rabbinic Philosophy, a Probe Rabbinische Philosophie. It's actually a, uh, the title is a send up of a title of a work Mendelssohn was writing called An Example of Rabbinic Wisdom, not Philosophy. And my Mendelssohn's goal in writing this example of rabbinic wisdom was to somehow popularize uh, Jewish philosophy to the Enlightenment. You know, this is a journal article. Well, what Maimon does is he he uh, he, he writes about uh, Maimonides. He gives a Kantian interpretation of Maimonides's remark about a passage in Pirke Avot. Okay, so in in this way, he's suggesting to Maimon. You know, this is what rabbinic philosophy actually looks like. It looks like Maimonides, not what you're doing. You're a popularizer. Uh, that's uh, that's pretty harsh uh, uh, as a criticism. This is something about Maimon. He uh, he could be deeply complimentary and deeply appreciative of other human beings, and also highly critical of them at the very uh, you know into, on an intellectual plane at the same time. So he had a complicated relationship with with Mendelssohn in this respect, but really owes 
and in, and he's, he's uh, admits this. He owes Mendelssohn much. Can you tell us about Maimon's view of Moses in his essay, The Great Personage? Yes. Can you elaborate on Maimon's interpretation of Moses? Yeah, I, I, I find this particularly interesting. Um, uh, the goal of the essay is to determine whether there is such a thing as a great personage, and if so, in accordance with what sort of measure. Um, and he looks, he, he, he visits different sorts of, hum, of, of, of preeminent personages, noble figures, statesmen, generals. And he finally comes to Moses. He's, you know, Moses now becomes the, um, the paramount example of a great personage, the great personage. Um, uh, he, Maimon portrays Moses, and this is only in a couple pages at the end, of, toward the end of the essay, as a great legislator. But not as a, not, he doesn't mention him as a prophet. Uh, his intellectual perfection, Moses's intellectual perfection, quote, innate talent, genius, education in an Egyptian court, and instruction in every Egyptian branch of knowledge, according to Maimon, prepares Moses for political and moral greatness. So Moses's combination of intellect and will revealed himself in a great plan that Moses devised. And that, uh, quote, liberating his slavishly oppressed nation, developing its moral character, and giving it a political existence. So Moses is a great founder, uh, political founder, primarily for, for, for Maimon. And um, uh, he, he arrives at this, uh, at this founding by rejecting uh, what he calls the ancient Jewish patriarchal idea of God as self-subsistent cause or most wise and just, which are uh, sort of anthropomorphizations of, 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 of the divine from Maimon's point of view. Uh, that the patriarchs arrive at by just observing human actions and, and the actions of physical nature. So if beings in nature act for the sake of an end, God must be God must act for the sake of an end, and God therefore must be wise and just. So qualities are ascribed to God by the patriarchs, precisely by observing not God but natural things uh, and human things. Um, uh, as a result, Maimon observes a contrast between the generality of natural laws and the individual character of human laws. So there's a kind of breach between the divine world and the human world, a, a rupture that he sees repeated in Kant, actually, uh, between the is and the ought. Um, uh, Moses' solution to this problem of the, uh, of the rupture between divine and human things and, and the kind of anthropomorphisms of which... Uh, uh, Jewish thought had been to which Jewish thought had been prone up to that point is um, to postulate an omnipotent and supremely good God whose existence guarantees an agreement between the natural and the moral realms. So the mosaic idea of God is therefore the Almighty God ruling all of nature, named, and I'm quoting my Maimon here, Jehovah, postulated by what will be, which is of course. You know the, the 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 actual grammatical meaning of the tetragrammaton. So there, and and as a result, this is what will be is important because it brings together then in one idea an is and an ought. What will be and what is turn out to be the same. Um, so in Maimon's words, Moses's God demands a natural order of things that's appropriate or fitting for the moral order of things. Moses's God arranges a physical world that expresses 
the rudiments of morality. And one sign of this union of the moral and the natural is uh, the fact that when uh, when Moses dies, his body, or, or before he dies, he doesn't suffer any of the usual symptoms of senescence. He doesn't lose his eyesight. Um, uh, doesn't doesn't become wrinkled. And, and Maimon concludes as a result of this that quote what seems to indicate only a natural phenomenon actually indicates a moral phenomenon. Um, in Moses, will and nature are one as a result of the kind of God, the idea of God he postulates. Now, what, what, what's interesting to me about all of this is that Moses becomes the paradigmatic personage, but in that case, the paradigmatic personage is, is, is a, a, a legislator. It's not a philosopher. Maimonides' is Moses is a philosopher prophet, you know. Um, Maimon's is not. And it's curious, in fact, to me that Maimon never mentions philosophers among his categories of great personages, statesmen, poets, and warriors. The omission to me is striking, um, but it recalls Maimon's own self-characterization from, from the autobiography, which exempts him from the legions of the great. He writes, quote, I am not, to be sure, a great man, a philosopher of the world, or a buffoon. But what does that matter? I love the truth, and where truth is at stake, I do not ask myself about the devil or his grandmother, unquote. The, the implied distinction then between the great personage, Moses, as a legislator statesman, and on, on the one hand, and the lover of truth, on the other hand, seems to covertly subordinate um, uh, political achievements to philosophical achievements. The philosopher cannot be restricted by particular achievements, however great they might be. Um, uh, so the inevitable skepticism that you find among philosophers eschews, rejects founding, political founding for philosophical findings, so to speak. Maimon's judgment recalls Aristotle's preference for the intellectual probity of the philosopher over the magnanimity of the great-souled individual. And I think, my, I think in, uh, that Maimon uses the figure of Moses to communicate that, the subordination of, of the political to the um, uh, to the philosophical, and at the same time, sort of depriving Moses of uh, a um, a direct connection to God. Moses postulates an idea of God that brings together the uh, natural and the moral. Maimon writes, "It's not as if he experiences uh, a blinding revelation from God." So that it's it's rather curious. This is a view of Moses that is not too different from um, Spinoza, or ironically Machiavelli's in, in uh, I think it's chapter seven of the Prince, where he portrays Moses as a great founder and nothing else. There's another quotation I'd be curious to ask you out about on pages eighty-eight and eighty-nine. Uh -huh. Maimon writes as follows in one of his essays: Among the nobility, men of extraordinary talents are not uncommon, but great individuals are. Why? Because the education of the nobility is in this respect, perhaps even worse than that of the middle class. The common citizen must practice some trade to feed himself. To this end, as much as he enjoys idleness, he must learn something and work constantly, that is, consistently act on a solid plan. Mm -hmm. The noble who inherits his wealth does not need to work in this fashion and is only too easily seduced to do nothing 
For a few years or so, he will join the military or hold a position in the court, then retire as if he had done something significant and either consume his income in some great place or occupy his estate, get married, have children, etc. Such an owner of property and wealth would find it very strange to be advised to allow his son to study mathematics. He should become a soldier, not a scholar. Fine, gracious sir, but your son should become a man. He should correctly and fundamentally learn to think. He should have the determination to undertake important intellectually strenuous activities and be hardened by them to perseverance. And all this he can acquire through the study of mathematics, should he afterwards not even keep in his head a single proposition of this science. The consequences of that exercise for his character could not could still not fail to appear. Do I need to add that many think and behave more correctly than before? And I uh, and that I do not doubt that they're that I do not doubt their right to be called honorable and useful individuals, but only their right to be called great personages. I have the good fortune to know that to know a, a nobleman of extraordinary talents who, in spite of the usual education of his position, cultivates the great minds he received from nature, and who surely, through firmness and perseverance in these noble intentions, will not only receive the title of a great personage, but will earn it as well. Women of great talent are not uncommon, but great women, at the least, they are extremely rare, rare because partly because of the weakness inherit, inherited in their sex, partly because of their domestic and political relations with the opposite sex, petty emotions and passions not aiming at great intellectual and moral ends, exclusion from important businesses, the slavish obsequiousness of women in subnations, and as well their unrestrained lust for power in others. These are natural impediments to self-rule and the self-will on which all human greatness exists. There are, however, also exceptions. What's what's he trying <laughs> to say in this passage? Well, this yeah, this is a. a uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to try to. I'll overly simplify it. It's it's. Uh, the first part of the passage, he's taking a, a, a real smack at the nobility, you know. Uh, the nobility have the leisure to educate themselves and their children. Do they do it? No. They think that they're, uh, because they have leisure and money, they, they're going to go off and join the military for a couple of years. They're going to buy themselves a commission and um, get out when the getting's good and then enjoy the rest of their lives in physical you know, uh, in, in physical pleasures on some wonderful estate somewhere. And if they have any kids, they're going to direct them to lead the same kind of life. So their, their, their greatness, so to speak, is not a matter of character or intellect at all. It's simply a result of uh, nobility of birth. They're not really noble after all. And if they had any sense, they would uh, educate their, 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 their sons. How would they do that? By introducing them to the study of mathematics. Whether or not they became mathematicians is irrelevant, Maimon says. What's important is that they, uh, their, their minds are, are, are honed by attention to mathematics. In a way, Maimon is recalling his own education. It was, math, it was uh, this combination of Talmud and mathematics that really sharpened his intellect to such a great degree that made him such an impressive thinker. Um, in any event, um, he knows of only one aristocrat, uh, who's, who combines high birth with 
uh, intellectual probity and talent. And I, I think he's referring to uh, the, the Count von Kalkreut, who's taken him in. Um, I said, that man is a great personage. So the accent of, 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 of human greatness falls, again, you know, in the direction of um, uh, intellect and, and uh, sympathy with philosophy, not simply on um, uh, uh, great achievements for which most aristocrats are not responsible in the first place. They are men of small achievement and big titles. So he's rather, he's rather insulting about them. I think it's, it's a funny passage, I think. Now, with regard to women, this, of course, he's uh, expressing what is in many respects the opinion of the day. Um, basically, women, uh, women's position in uh, civil society is so uh, debased that there's no way they can become great. They're not given the opportunity to study. They don't participate in political life. They're tied down to the home too much. And, um, their responsibilities are too domestic. Some cultures almost virtually enslave women, he points out. On the, but, but, but what's interesting to me, he says, however, there are exceptions. So who are those exceptions? He doesn't name them, but there are some very exceptional women in his own age. Um, Madame de Steyl famously, um, uh, who was uh, uh, impressed even Kant with her intellect, you know. Um, so he, it, it's, a, it's a funny kind of position. He, he asserts the conventional view of, of women in, in, uh, in relation to the possibility of greatness, namely that it's, they're not capable of greatness, and then says, oh, but some are, you know, thereby taking down the conventional view. So you put the two parts of this passage together, and he's in a way trying to uh, 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 engender some skepticism about the, the way, the conventional way of, you know, of, of valuing um, nobility and women. Why did you select the title Apikoros? What does it mean in context? Well, again, Apikoros is a Hebrew word that literally translates as uh, Epicurean, but it's it also has this overtone meaning heretic. So if someone is a heretic, you call them an Epicurean. That has to do with some of the rudiments of Epicurean philosophy. Uh, that uh, there is, you know, the gods are simply um, imaginary. So the word Epicurean in Hebrew uh, culture early on, you know, uh, uh, becomes a synonym for, uh, for blasphemy or heresy. The specific motivation for that title is this event when um, uh, Maimon, or Maimon, excuse me, Mendelssohn is goaded by his, his, his associates into scolding Maimon for his, uh, for his uh, behavior, uh, his uh, alcoholism, and his uh, visiting houses of prostitution, um, pleasure-seeking, uh, a pleasure-seeking way of life that was bringing disgrace upon him and upon their circle, uh, they thought. And so they wanted Mendelssohn to have a word with him. And Mendelssohn speaks to him very sharply about his behavior. And, you know, uh, Maimon responds, well, we're all, we are all Epicureans. I mean, all of us, you, you, you bourgeois, uh, Ber Berliners, and then and me. There's no difference between us. Now, on this, this is a very complicated pun. On one level, he 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 means we're all pleasure seeking. You as well as I, you know. And then on a, on, on a, another level, he's invoking the 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 uh, the, the implicit Hebrew sense of the word Epicurean or Apikoros, 
Now he doesn't say apicoros. He, he uses he just says you're, you're Epicureans, you know. But to a Jewish reader, they would hear that apicoros, and Mendelssohn certainly was you know would have heard that implication. Namely, he's not just calling them pleasure seeking. He's saying we're all heretics, not just me, you too. Why are you heretics? Because you're philosophers. But you try to, as he goes on to explain elsewhere, you're trying to disguise that fact, you know, by trying to make philosophy uh, acceptable to um, Jewish society. Uh, so the, the, I, I chose this for the title of the book because I thought it really captured something uh, essential about Maimon's character and, uh, uh, and, and his thought and his relationship to um, the German, uh, to, to the Haskalah in Berlin. Can you tell us, as we close this interview, about your subsequent work since completing this volume? Where has your time and attention gone since finishing this volume? Um, well, um, let's see. I uh, Shortly after finishing it, I was uh, uh, asked to write a chapter on Nietzsche and his relationship to uh, the issues of uh, Issues of Equality. Uh, that's recently been published in a book by Sunni Press called Equality and Democracy, um, edited by uh, Stephen Frankel and John Ray. Uh, after that, I uh, my retirement started, and uh, the, I uh, have been devote, dedicating myself the last several months, last year really, nearly, to a book uh, that concerns the intersection of modern political science and modern natural science. Uh, so it, it focuses specifically on uh, Machiavelli, Francis Bacon, and Rene Descartes, and the intersection of um, Machiavelli's notion of fortuna in, in The Prince and the Discourses uh, with uh, Bacon's and um, uh, Descartes' uh, concept of natural law and of the ends of science, which turn out to be not knowledge of nature, but knowledge for the sake of mastery of nature. So I, uh, hopefully that book will someday see the light of day. I, I've got a few chapters written and a few more to go. And in, in, to amuse myself uh, on the side, I've, I've been translating uh, a, a book of poetry by Rose Auslander, who uh, was a, um, a colleague of uh, and, and good friend of uh, the, 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 the poet Paul Ceylan. Uh, both lived in, in Chernovitz and both survived the Shoah. And uh, uh, she, she's a very interesting poet. And uh, I'm, I'm, I was always fascinated with Ceylan and uh, I like to translate things. I do it for fun. And so that's my how I entertain myself in the evenings, <laughs> translating her poetry. <laughs> As we bring our dialogue today to a close, I am your host today on the New Books Network, Ari Barblat. Today, I have conducted a dialogue for our New Books in Jewish Studies channel with Professor Timothy Sean Quinn. He is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio. We have been discussing his new book, Apikoros, The Last Essays of Solomon Maimon, Hebrew Union College Press is the publisher. 2021 is the date of publication. That's Cincinnati, Ohio, Hebrew, Uni for Hebrew Union College Press, 2021. Thank you.